0: Welcome to the Three Creeks Church podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio, that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. Well, good morning, Three Creeks. My name is Joel, and I get to be the pastor here. And if you are here for the first time, I want to echo what Chris said a few minutes ago. We are thankful that you're here, and we hope that uh, in, in a few minutes after we're done, we hope that you feel when you walk out that you're glad that you came and that you felt welcomed and that you felt uh, that we, were, we are sincerely honored that you chose to spend a Sunday morning here with us. Also, like Chris said, we're in week two of a series called Ephesians, and we're talking about becoming a church that's built on Christ. And and, uh, if you missed last week's message more than usual, I just want to encourage you to go back and listen to it or watch last week's message. I tried to lay a foundation for the whole series, and we're going to make our way through the book of Ephesians one verse at a time, and it will make a lot more sense if you go back and listen to week one. I tried to explain who wrote it and why they wrote it and who he wrote it to and, and what was going on in the city that he wrote it to. And, and I, I tried to give you a context for every verse that we're going to go through for the next few months. And so uh, wherever podcasts are found, I believe you can find ours. And I hope that you'll go back and, and listen to it. I think it would be helpful. Uh, one thing that I mentioned last week and I should mention again is that this letter, the Ephesians, the book of Ephesians was a letter written to a really young church in a really important city. And they were facing a lot of social pressure to change and conform. And, and they too, I kid you not, met in a school rather than a church building. And they too needed to spiritually mature. And so this is the perfect time for our church to go through this because all of those things are true about us. We are a young church and we are in an important city and we are facing pressure and we do meet in a school and we do need to mature spiritually as individuals and as a church. Ephesians, as I mentioned last week, too, is theologically dense. It is rich. It is, uh, you got to go through slow. And one of the things that you should know about Ephesians and you should know about this series is that when we make our way through the end, when we go verse by verse through the whole book, we're going to get to the end and it's going to be, you know, the end of chapter six and we're going to close our Bibles and we say, we did it. We went through Ephesians the, the truth about Ephesians is that we could just, the next week, we could just open up to Ephesians chapter 1 again and run it back. It is that thick. It's like the golden corral of Bible books. You can't eat it all the first time through. And so as I am trying to prepare these messages, I'm looking at these passages going, man, how do I explain all of this? And the bottom line is that I can't. And so I've got to go and pray and, get, and say, God, what do you want for three creeks this time around? in our first go through. What do, what do you want us to hear on January 15th, 2023 for the people that are in that middle school? What do you want us to hear? And my goal through this whole thing is to listen to God and to give you what I think he says. So Ephesians chapter one, we're gonna start today in verse three. We're gonna go through verse 14, that's 12 verses. And I actually wanna start this message by reading the whole thing. It's two full slides up there. I think if you're anything like me, your mind tends to wander about halfway through the first slide. And so I have a way to keep everybody engaged. Here's what I want you to do. As I read through these 12 verses, I want you to try to pay attention to and count the number of times that Paul writes the words in Christ or through Christ or under Christ when it's in or through or under Christ. As I read through it, I'll I'll even pause and emphasize it for you. I'm going to count how many times just in, in this opening paragraph that Paul says that these people, his Christian readers are in Christ. So verse three starts like this. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us, in the one He loves. That's five. Nope, that's four. Here's five. (laughs) In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ in him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will in order that we, who were first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also, Ephesians, and you also, Christians at Three Creeks, were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him, that's 11, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I mean, do you believe me now that it is dense, that it is rich? Were there words that you didn't understand in that? Were there phrases that you're I mean, it's just Paul launches this avalanche of praise to God. And to us in our English Bibles, at least in my version of the English Bible, it's eight sentences long. But in the original Greek language that Paul wrote it, that was one sentence. It was 215 Greek words in a row with no period. He was so fired up about what he was saying that he couldn't even stop to pause and gather his thoughts. He didn't even come up for air. He just wrote and wrote and wrote underneath the inspiration of God. The Holy Spirit carries him along to just launch this avalanche of praise to God. And he begins that whole, that whole sentence, he begins by summarizing what he's so excited about. Let me read you verse 3 again. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Do you remember where Paul was when he wrote this thing? In jail. And he opens up by talking about how blessed he feels. He understands that it doesn't matter where he's at, the circumstances under which he's living. But he he has been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, and he wants the Ephesians Christians to know how incredibly privileged we are as well. Paul, in this opening passage, is screaming at them about who they are in Christ. Their identity is in Christ. Remember that this is a young church in a popular city, and it's taken off. It's taken off so much that some of the other people are beginning to riot to try to derail the church. So Paul knows when he talks about the heavenly realms in verse 3, he's talking about this spiritual battle that we cannot see that is going on. And he's looking at the church in Ephesus going, man, this is an important church for getting the gospel to the whole province. And so he also knows that Satan, his enemy in the spiritual realm has the church in Ephesus in the crosshairs. If Satan can stop the gospel from taking root in Ephesus, well, then he's derailing the gospel mission in the whole province. Ephesus is a hot battleground between God and Satan. And so Paul starts off by saying, this is who you are. You are in Christ. And the most important thing about you, Ephesians, is that you are Christians you are in Christ. And to you three creeks this morning, my hope, my goal is to remind you who you are in Christ. If you are a Christ follower, if you have made a decision to give your life to Jesus, that you are in Christ and that that is the most important thing about you. And that is truly what identifies you. But you got to know this that Satan is trying to erase that identity. Satan cannot create anything. He's not a creator. God creates everything. But Satan takes what God creates and he he tries to distort it. He tries to pervert it. He tries to erase it. He tries to destroy it. And Satan, listen, Satan cannot overpower God. There's no contest. But Satan really wants to hurt God. And the way Satan's favorite way to hurt God is he goes after his kids. If you are a father in here, you know what I'm talking about. If you want to hurt me, don't punch me. Go punch my kids. That, that, that hurts infinitely t- more And so Satan, he does the same thing. He he knows he cannot overpower God and so Satan aggressively and relentlessly goes after his kids. God has given us an identity and Paul's about to tell us a lot about what it is. And Satan's goal is to come in and try to erase it and distort it and destroy it and ruin it. And if he does that, If he can get us thinking things about ourselves that God does not think about us, then Satan has succeeded in hurting God because he has hurt God's kids. So how does Satan do this? How does Satan keep us from knowing our true identity? He uses a lot of different tools. First, Satan uses the opinions of people. Your parents said things about you. Your peers have said things about you. Maybe your partner has said something about you. Enemies, friends, they've said things about you and they've molded you and they, they've given you this identity that may or may not be true. Satan uses hurt and painful experiences. If he can get us angry or bitter or feeling a lot of shame or guilt, then he, has, he knows that we're really not gonna figure out who we are in Christ. If he can get us thinking that way. Satan uses the media. He he does. Every day there's millions of messages bombarding us, saying, you'll never be like them. You'll never have what they have. What happened to you? Why can't you cut it? You'll never be as talented as they are. You'll never get it together. And he uses these lies and he plants them. And then It begins to identify us and we begin to fall into these classes of people that God never made. Satan puts thoughts in our minds. He suggests thoughts. Now, the the truth is that we control our thoughts, but we get suggested thoughts all the time. Satan suggests thoughts. People suggest thoughts. God suggests thoughts. And we control which thoughts that we hold on to and which thoughts that we take captive and expel from our minds. We choose whether to hold on to it or not. But Satan, who is trying to distort our identity in Christ, will say things like this. You have to earn God's acceptance. You've got to jump through hoops so that God will love you. You know that sin you committed? You'll never be forgiven for that. You should be ashamed of yourself. You talk about changing, you and I both know you'll never change. You can't change. You'll never get it right. And if we start believing this stuff, it hides our true identity in Christ. And the number one tool that Satan uses to try to distort and destroy and erase our identity in Christ, if he can get us thinking that it's not the most important thing about us that God loves us and chose us and adopted us and redeemed us. If, if he can get us off of that, then he has succeeded in hurting God. The number one way that he tries to do that is he plants these lies in our heads and then he gets us to just repeat them back to ourself. It's almost as if he can plant it and if we start saying it to ourselves, then he can kind of leave us alone. When we start saying things like, I don't have purpose, I'm worthless, I'll never get it right, I'll never be able to change, I should be ashamed of myself. I haven't been a Christian long enough for that. I'm not old enough or smart enough or disciplined enough or good enough to do these things that God wants me to do. Everybody else is gifted and I'm not. We begin to repeat these things to ourselves and they actually, it becomes our identity, And Satan has then succeeded in hurting God because he has erased and destroyed the true identity that God has given us as Christians. He puts ideas in our minds, and we miss who we truly are. So if all of these tools are being used against us, and they are, then praise God for the letter to the Ephesians because Paul writes 215 words in a row, screaming at them, this is who you really are. This is who God says you really are. And nobody gets to define you other than the one that created you. So what I want to do is I want to go back through that passage that I read. And there's actually, there's more than this, but I don't have hours, so I picked four because I love lists and sometimes I love when they're short. So if you like taking notes, I picked out four things that God says about us. He says, this is actually your true identity. So here we go. Verse 4, 5, and 6. Here's the first one. four. God chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship. Through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. The first one is that we are adopted. We are adopted in love. God has adopted us into his family. And look at it right after it says adoption and sonship, in accordance with his pleasure and will which means that it pleased God to do it. Nobody had to twist his arm and say, come on. It pleased him to do it. God has not just invited us to be servants and worshipers, but also his children. And to Paul's readers in this context, in the first century Greco-Roman world, this had implications because only a son or a daughter... Would share in the inheritance. There were other people that felt like they were a part of the family. Servants would live with the family for decades, but they didn't share in the inheritance because they weren't adopted as children. And so when Paul writes, He has predestined us for adoption to sonship, that jumped off the page. Whoa! We are sharing in the inheritance. The Father has adopted us to share in the Son's inheritance the glorious estate in heaven. My daughter, Willow, my two-year-old, she is adopted, and she didn't do anything to deserve it. She was just born. That's it. And God put it on Morgan and I, Morgan's heart, and then I kind of got looped into it. God put it on our hearts to try to adopt a child into our family. And by the grace of God there was a a baby that was conceived and Willow's courageous birth mom made an adoption plan for her child. And together we named her Willow Lynn. And Morgan and I went to the hospital and Morgan didn't have to give birth. And then we adopted Willow and we brought her home and now she is our child. And every right that our biological children, Judah and Cooper, get, Willow gets the same. In the Trainer family, Will, just because she's adopted doesn't mean that she doesn't get her share. Right now, she gets a third. It's, it's between 70 and $80, I think, right now. <laughs> she gets a third of the inheritance because she's my child. She has been adopted into our family. She got the same number of Christmas presents. She too gets to eat Cinnamon Toast Crunch. She gets clothes and shoes and stuffed animals and coloring books, just like my other kids, because she's adopted. She's in our family, and she shares in the inheritance. And Satan will whisper things like this. No, no. Because what Paul's saying is we have been adopted into God's family. And Satan will whisper things like, no, you haven't been around long enough for that. You, you don't have an equal share. You don't go to church as much as they have. You didn't grow up in church, so you're kind of an outsider. You've made too many mistakes. There are other people that are better Christians than you. And so don't be thinking you're some something special these are the things that satan will whisper and i watch it i watch it happen some people come in here full of confidence in their own spiritual walk and it's because they've been around a while and they should feel that way but then some people who don't come as often they almost come in and they hope that i don't ask them where they've been and i just want everybody here to know that if you have put your faith in christ you are adopted into the family Equal inheritance. That is a lie that Satan is trying to feed you that you're some half as good Christian. The truth is that it was God's will to adopt you and it pleases him to adopt you. Nobody twisted his arm and he brought you in and he's pumped that you are in the family of God and you belong. And somebody needed to hear that today. Let's look at the second one. Verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Number two, we are redeemed. In the Bible, redemption means liberation from slavery upon the payment of ransom. And whether you know it or not, you were born as a sinner, naturally bent to rebel. Shackled by sin and unable to be free on your own. But, and, but Christians have been redeemed. We've been liberated from this captivity that we once lived in. Now, but that doesn't mean, and I think you'll agree with me, that even if you have become a Christian, and you have been redeemed. That does not mean that all of a sudden you have stopped sinning. It's almost as if we were born in a dark, cold prison cell, and the doors were shut, and there was a chain around them with a lock that you did not have the key to. And without help, you had no hope. And this is the state of every person that is born with a sinful nature, bent to rebel. That's how, that's the setting before Christ. But Christ lived and died and rose again, and through that, got the keys. And it's as if Jesus Christ came in with the keys, punch the demon guard in the jugular, and open the door so that we could be free and redeemed. But isn't this true, that from time to time, even though we've been redeemed, and even though we've been forgiven, and even though we go, yeah, sin isn't good for me, from time to time, we kinda proverbially wander back into the cell and we do it again We do what we said we weren't going to do. But the truth about that is if you wander back into the cell, the door never closes behind you. The lock and the chain have been, they're out of there. They're not even around. The doors don't close behind you. And Jesus patiently walks back in and grabs your hand and says, come on, you know this isn't home anymore. And he walks you back out. That is the picture of redemption. That one, he freed you to begin with. And two, even if you try to go back there, he will patiently walk you out into the light again. And I know there's somebody in the room who knows that they're redeemed, who knows that they're forgiven. But recently you've walked back into that dark cell. And Jesus is there and he's going, come on, you know you don't belong here. Let me walk you back out into the light. But what Satan will say is that I can't believe you're back in there. You should be ashamed of yourself. You should keep that a secret because if you tell anybody, they're going to think less of you. You'll never change. These are the things that Satan says, and they're lies. They are lies, and it's not really who you are. The cell door will never shut behind you. And you just have to believe in Jesus again and say, lead me out of this place. I don't belong here anymore because of what you have done for me. Skipping down to verse 11. This is what verse 11 says. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined. Some of you guys are getting excited. (laughs) According to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. The third one is that we are chosen. We are adopted, we are redeemed, and we are chosen. Now that is a word that you just can't fly by in a sermon it is a profound word that has serious implications. There's another 40-minute sermon, and there's another 40-sermon series that could try to unpack that word chosen. I just want to take a couple minutes and see if I can shed some light on what Paul means. So let me, let me start with this. If I'm a Christian, if I've decided to give my life to Jesus, did I choose God or did God choose me? It's a loaded question, because God, in his infinite knowledge and sovereignty, knows everything, right? The Bible's pretty clear about that. So doesn't that imply that he knew whether or not I would choose to follow him or not? If he knows everything and he's sovereign, he's omniscient, then doesn't that imply that he knew whether or not I was going to accept Jesus in my heart and continue to follow? Doesn't he know those things? But if, and if that's true, then does that imply that God chooses some and doesn't choose others? He excludes people. Is the invitation only for those that are, that have been chosen or predestined, if you will? And those are good questions that they've been asked billions of times. When you come to this word chosen, And the word that we also read predestined in the Bible, somebody will inevitably raise their hand and they will say, well, wait, 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 wait a minute. I decided to follow Jesus. I made that choice. I remember when I did it. I remember where I was. I chose that. And the answer to that person is, well, of course you did. But the truth is that scripture says that you would have never had the ability to decide to follow Jesus if God had not first decided on you before the creation of the world. That's what it says. So how then do we reconcile the sovereignty of God and and these passages that say that we are chosen, predestined, God knows everything. He is sovereign over all. How do we reconcile this and then also hold equally Man's responsibility and free will to choose or not choose God because the Bible is really clear that this is true and the Bible is really clear that this is true. I mean, how many times can you think of in the Bible where Jesus is going about his life, where he gives people the choice to follow him or not and some do and some don't and they choose it. So how do we reconcile? How do we hold these together? What some people will say is you've gotta pick one or the other. You've gotta pick a side, you've gotta choose. You're gonna believe over here in predestination, you can be a Calvinist, or you're gonna believe in free will and be an Arminian. Which one? Pick a side. And then somebody will inevitably say, well, no, 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 that's a bad idea. What you do instead is you kinda collapse them into one another, and you sorta believe in the sovereignty of God, and you sorta believe in man's responsibility, And then you kind of sort of believe in the whole thing. And in the words of Alistair Begg, you get a theological dog's breakfast. It doesn't do any good for anybody. It's useless and it doesn't make any sense. And it it just makes you, rather than dive into who God is, it makes you just go, I I don't even know if I can go forward with that. I'm, I'm just gonna ignore that. What you have to do, here's what we do is it, it's, it's not that complicated, but it is hard to do with a human brain. You believe both things because both things are taught and you don't partially believe either of them, you believe both of them in their entirety. The bottom line is that with a human brain, you'll never be able to fully understand how these two work together. When, when, uh, when Charles Spurgeon was asked, how do you reconcile these two things? He says, I don't, because there's no need to reconcile friends. These two truths are friends. And these, this is a great example as to why the Bible also says over and over and over, It is appropriate for us to bow down in wonder because the answer to this question is only found in God. And so it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to toy for hours and hours, making this an intellectual exercise, thinking that if we do it long enough, then maybe what we'll do is we'll come up with a simple answer to a question that has baffled the best theological minds for centuries. It's not gonna happen. And so we have to abandon our addiction to control and closure and understanding everything and just bow down and wonder and go, my thoughts are not as high as your thoughts. My ways are not as high as your ways. And so I'm actually going to have to go to sleep tonight knowing that you are in control and I'm not. That's a hard thing for a human to do. But the truth is that the Bible teaches both things. And don't believe either of them halfway. Believe both of them the whole way. And if I could just kind of close with the best illustration that I've ever heard about how this works together. It is as though becoming a Christian is like walking through a door. And on the front of the door, it's a white door and there's black letters and it's the words of Jesus. And it says on, it's painted on the door, come to me, everybody who is weary and burdened and I will give you rest. It is an invitation to the entire universe, come to me, Jesus said it. And it's as though when we become a Christian, we walk towards that door and we open the door and we walk through it and the door shuts behind us and we look back at the door and it's painted on the other side, white with black letters It's the words of Ephesians chapter 1. In him, you were chosen. You were chosen to be here, predestined by a sovereign God to walk through that door. And I I hope that as you think about that illustration, that maybe that, that will actually make you bow down and wonder and go, I can't figure this out. But God, thank you for inviting me and thank you for choosing me. We were chosen by God. And Satan will whisper, no, you weren't. No, you weren't. You don't deserve to be in there. You don't, you don't deserve to get to walk through that door because you and I both know what you've done. You haven't been around long enough. You keep doing the same things over and over. And that's a lie. And Satan wants us to repeat that to ourselves and the truth that Paul is screaming at these Ephesians and I'm trying to get across to you is that you were chosen in him. Here's the last one. Verse 13 and 14. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Here's number four and the last one. We are sealed. Nothing, no one can ever take your salvation away if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. A seal in this day and age, was a, it was a word that was common. It was a mark of ownership. It was a mark that, that the owner was gonna protect that that is sealed. And so a seal would be branded on an animal, on livestock, or a seal, maybe the picture that comes to mind is, is a little drop of moist wax. Sorry, I, don't, I try not to say moist as often as possible, but it just came out there. You take that stamp and you drop it on there, and there's a seal, there's a family seal, and it's as if God has, has sealed you, and the way that he did that was that he gave every Christian the Holy Spirit, The Holy Spirit of God has taken up residence inside of believers. It's a deposit. Look what it says, guaranteeing the inheritance. It's as though the Holy Spirit is the birthmark of somebody who has been born again. And it cannot be erased. Cooper, my daughter, is pumped about her birthmarks. And the reason she loves them is because, what do we call them, Morgan? They're like angel marks or something. It's like, it's the way that God made her unique And she can take a billion baths and try to scrub it off, but nobody's going to take away the birthmark. It's permanent. One of the things I've I've done with my kids, I try to set myself up to look like a magician from time to time. Any other dads out there? And so what I do is I say, hey, here's your water bottle. It's like one of those plastic ones. Here's your water bottle. Why don't you go ahead and write your name on it? And I give a dry erase marker. And so Cooper will write Cooper on it. And then I'll take it a little bit later and I'll start drinking from it. And she'll say, hey, hey, that's mine. And I say, well, your name's not on it. And it's because I just took my thumb and just wiped off the marker. And she's like, wow, that is amazing. And I said, yeah, I am. And, <laughs> but when we get them a, a real water bottle, you know, one that's like $14.99 water bottle, and I don't want them to lose it at school. I take a double wide, thick black Sharpie and I write on the lid, and I write on the side, and I write on the bottom, because I don't want them to lose it. And, it and, and then I blow on it, and I shake it a little bit, and I rub it just to make sure it's not gonna come off. That's what I do when, I, when something belongs to me and I'm not letting anybody else take it. If you're taking notes, write this down. God uses Sharpies. He doesn't use a dry erase marker and wait until you're good enough or you go to church enough or join a group. It's not how it works. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, he has taken a huge Sharpie and he wrote his name on you, sealed. He gave you the Holy Spirit. And Satan will try to come in and whisper and say, no, 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 you used to be in, but recently you, you still think you're in? And the truth of what Paul is saying is that if you're in, you're in, it's permanent. You've been chosen by the Father and redeemed by the Son and sealed with the Spirit and your future could not be more secure. Friends we are adopted, we are redeemed, we are chosen, and we are sealed. And the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see ourselves has implications in all of our lives. It will determine whether or not we will be joyful, full of hope and able to use, able for God to use us to do what he wants us to do. And Satan is hard at work all the time trying to erase these words from our vocabulary. He wants us to be full of shame and guilt and regret and pain and anger and bitterness. He doesn't want us to remember that we are adopted and redeemed and chosen and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Can I just ask a pointed question this morning as we close? What is a lie that Satan has been feeding you? Something that isn't true that has crept into your identity. Was it something one of your parents said to you when you were a kid? Was it something that a coach said to you? and you've held on to it and it hurts? Was it somebody that you used to have a relationship with that said something that was a lie, it wasn't true? What has Satan been feeding you and have you been repeating it? What is a lie you've been believing about yourself? What Paul wants the Ephesians to do and what I want us to do is stop believing these things that have been said about us. Because the one who created us, only he gets to define us. The one who created us, only he gets to say who we are. Only he gets to identify us and give us our true identity. And Paul tells the Ephesians, the most important thing about you is that you are in Christ. And I'm telling you, Three Creeks, that if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, the most important thing about you is that you are in Christ and you are forgiven and redeemed and adopted and chosen. Only God, the one who created you, gets to define you. You're a child of God. And we are who He says we are. That's it. We already sang about it. We are who he says we are. Will you guys stand with me now and I'm going to pray and we're going to sing that chorus one or two more times. Father, I pray over your church. This is your church, God. Somebody walked in here Believing something about themselves that isn't true. Somebody walked in here feeling worthless, feeling like it was their fault, feeling ashamed, feeling like they don't measure up to a sibling or a coworker, to a friend. Father, there are some deep-seated pieces of our identities that aren't true. Some of us had parents that said things that weren't true, and some of us had coaches or friends or peers that have said things that aren't true, but Father, we, we admit that they have crept into our identities, and God, we need your help to get rid of them. So Father, as our church sings this song, I pray for the person that starts singing it or starts listening to it and doesn't believe it yet. And that over the course of a few minutes as we declare these true things about who you are and who we are, that you would draw our hearts to understand how you see us, that we are adopted, that we are redeemed, that we are chosen, and that we are sealed. And for these things, God, we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com.